0: Hi everyone, I'm Shahzib. And I'm Hadia. And you're tuned into Jumur Radio.
1: Launched in 2018, Jumur is a critical left media organization that covers politics in South Asia and its diasporas.
0: Today, you're listening to a special podcast to launch Jumur's summer issue on imperialism in South Asia. Visit our website jumur.org. To learn more.
1: In the past year, we witnessed the catastrophic ending of the US occupation of Afghanistan, the discovery of unmarked mass graves of Indigenous children in Canada, the uneven distribution of COVID vaccines, and a deepening of the conflict between the US and China. Imperialism has returned to center stage.
0: We'll be speaking today with a fierce critic of imperialism, Priyamvada Gopal. Priya is Professor of Postcolonial Studies at Cambridge University. Her teaching and research interests include Colonial and Postcolonial Studies, the novel, South Asian Literature, and Critical Race Studies. She is the author of several books, including most recently, Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance, and British Descent*, published by Verso in 2020. Priya is also a well-known public intellectual who was named one of the world's Top 50 Thinkers by Prospect Magazine.
1: We wanted to start with maybe laying down some kind of definitions like facing how you see imperialism. So, for instance, people like David Harvey argue that imperialism is no longer a useful category um, with the emergence of other actors like India and China and you know, various nation states are appropriating surplus from each other. So, you know, he argues that, in fact, the East is appropriating more surplus value from the West And then there's the other side, like the Putniks, who argue that imperialism is still a useful category because the global north is still siphoning off, you know, the major kind of profits from the global south. And we just wanted to hear what you think about that. Like, how do you define imperialism
2: today? So my kind of bare bones definition of imperialism, uh, historical and present, is that it is racial capitalism. It's a racial. It's the racialized emergence of capitalism, or it's the emergence of capitalism alongside race ideologies. In that context, I would say that both Harvey and the Patnaiks have a point, point. and I think we actually need to come up with an understanding that takes into account both positions. I think the Patnaiks are right to say that we have still not left entirely the age of the great European empires. The post-1492 dispensation is still with us in a great many ways. But it is also necessary to recognize the emergence of new actors in the form, essentially, of the BRICS. Certainly, the first four actors there Brazil, Russia, India, China. I think that the two things are not contradictory. And the reason I say that is it is not just that the old dispensation is with us, it is also that the new actors are working very much within the terms of the old dispensation. And this is the thing about decolonization uh, that, you know, the last 70, 75 years, the post Bandung dispensation that is most striking is that there has been a failure. And failure is perhaps a euphemism. There has been a failure to break from racial capitalism. And by that, I don't mean that that these are new actors who are using exactly the same racial ideologies. But the fact of a world order that is still deeply racialized and that is run by the interests of capital, that has not changed. So there has not been, if you like, um, an epistemological break from the old order. So to me, the two positions are not contradictory. I I think that we have to recognize in ways that I think sections of the left are not recognizing uh, that this is not the same world order that emerged in 1945. Even though it has yet to disappear, um, but equally, I think um, it is problematic to suggest that, as some do, that that the emergence of uh, Russia, China, India has not changed uh, the picture. And I think, in fact, the lack of recognition of the latter speaks to something that is very close to my mind at the moment, given what's happening in 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 the Ukraine is that we are still practicing sometimes on the left a kind of campist cartoon anti-imperialism uh, that that acts as though we are still in 1955, um, and we are not. I think that we need to take that into account.
0: Yeah. I mean, the follow-up question, there are some people on the left in South Asia, I know in Pakistan, who think you could play off these contradictions between different imperialist, rivalries to further a left project. So for instance, some left are saying maybe ally with China to counteract U.S. imperialism. Others, especially some ethnic separatists in Pakistan, in particular, allying with the U.S. imperialists to offset and counteract, you know, the Pakistani military. And so how should the left navigate that space in South Asia?
2: That's a challenging question. I mean, the first thing I want to say is I'll make a slight distinction here between the left kind of broadly or vaguely defined and peoples who are facing aggression, oppression, occupation. When people face aggression, occupation, colonialism, there is a history of playing alliances and playing actors of each other. And it is an understandable and a pragmatic move that we have to understand in historical terms. I think, though, if we talk about a broad left intellectual analysis of the situation um, and thinking about left organizing in this context, I think we need to recall that although these different camps exist, They are also constantly shifting, and allegiances between them are constantly shifting. I mean, you know, in one sense, one can say there is China on the one hand and the US on the other, but I think that 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 form of campism overlooks the deep ties through capitalism between these economies and polities. You know, so that today, Putin, who is, you know, in everybody's bad books, uh, was actually a friend, not all that long ago, and may yet become a friend. So I guess from a somewhat privileged academic or intellectual viewpoint, I would say that that a left analysis has to be cognizant that these are not, you know, kind of permanent oppositions, these are not permanent uh, affiliations. And I think the question has to be posed, ethically, what is... The position that a left should take. Um, And I think the left needs to grapple with difficulty and the left needs to grapple with the messiness of these camps and their temporary allegiances and their temporary oppositions. Because at the end of the day, what people are at the receiving end of is international capital and is the various transmutations of racial and caste and religious ideologies. So the ethical position, I don't think, can really afford to say, well, today, China, tomorrow, Russia, maybe yesterday, the United States. Um, I I do see how that might be a political imperative for people uh, fighting existential struggles on the ground. Um, But I'm not sure uh, that a left analysis a left morality if you like um can afford to just play a pragmatic game because i think it takes us up dead ends um you know in 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 the final analysis
1: given that you're saying that yes the faces with these new nations the BRICS in particular like how imperialism is changing is obviously changing because of the presence of these countries at the same time, you're saying that the basic thing of capital accumulation remains. So, within South Asia in particular, given India's economic rise, the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, and China's very interventionist role uh, in Pakistan, how do you see the imperialist dynamics in South Asia shifting?
2: That is such a big question, in one sense, right? There's a kind of multiple imperialisms and multiple kind of state actors at play, I would say the official uh, left position in in some ways, uh, at least in India, is to, I suppose, in some sense, support the emergence of China and to see that as a central element of decolonization. And particularly in India, where uh, the Hindu right um, and Indian nationalists of various stripes fear China and hate China and premise their self-assertion against China, it's quite easy to Think about China as the kind of alternative, the the emergent power, the emergent power in the global south that ends the 1492 dispensation. I think that troubles me because I think that that um, overlooks the extent to which China is a rising and ongoing imperial power. There are peoples who are currently very much at the receiving end of the Chinese jackboot, and it is a jackboot, and I'm talking not only of the Tibetans. It seems to me troubling when people on the left either claim that the ongoing oppression, and I'll use that word vaguely, of the Uyghurs um, is a fantasy or a Western myth, or in fact, say, well, it's just a form of um, rehabilitation and education. And I have seen this argument made by people on the left, and it has struck me as utterly horrifying that that anybody on the left could uh, really, you know, uh, turn around and, and, and take either of these positions. And again, as I was saying earlier, I don't necessarily see a real opposition between Indian authoritarianism as it is currently emerging and Chinese state authoritarianism. In fact, as an Indian, when I go home, in all the China hate talk, I detect the the note that I detect above everything else is envy, you know, and the sense that, well, you know, we really ought to be like them. Um, you'll hear many Indian middle class, nice liberal middle class people say, you know, the reason India is backwards is is this bloody democracy business that we do. You know, we should be like China, don't deal with any protests, just clamp down and make progress. The first imperative. I'm not sure uh, even now that there are not quite you know significant ties uh, between Indian capital. Chinese capital, the Indian elites, the Chinese elites, the political elites, that is. So, again, I think that this becomes a kind of a false uh, opposition. And it's, a, again, it's a campism that I don't think will get us anywhere in the long run in terms of actually challenging imperialism, in terms of actually embracing something that we might honestly call decolonization.
1: Yeah. So, in your book, Insurgent Empire, you trace the links between colonialism and fascism uh, in the 20th century. How do you see these connections between fascism and colonialism and imperialism playing out today? And is there do you think there's a thing called fascist international and how does fascism in the global south through people like Modi rely on these broader imperialist connections
2: today? So. I'm going to assume that your your question starts with South Asia or or wishes to kind of think about the South Asian situation. This is a very good question because I think that my current analysis of where things are is that we can once again see the overlaps that were visible to anti-colonialists in the 1930s and 40s, the overlaps between expansionist racialized imperial ideologies and fascism now there are many on the left who you know for good reason will say don't use the word fascism lightly what you know what happened in the 1930s was something what is happening in India today uh, or elsewhere is a different thing and while respecting that position I would also say that we cannot expect fascism in the in the 2020s to look like it did in the 1930s, right? It it will naturally have taken on a different form. But if we also think about fascism as what it was, which is, uh, you know, in a sense, capitalism in crisis, capitalism turning to authoritarian uh, state institutions, capitalism in alliance with racial supremacism and racial ideologies, which require uh, the elimination of peoples who are deemed disposable or, or who are deemed to be a surplus to requirements, that is very much there in present-day India and elsewhere. So I am hard-pressed to say, well, what other word would we use for this? You can use another word, but the fact is that the phenomenon of Rampant capitalism, rampant concentration of wealth, profound inequality and discontent, combined with an ideology that very explicitly admired Nazism, and very explicitly is about racial supremacism and nationalism based on religious race, racist ideas, that is fascism, whatever name you call it. And The question then is, why is it that fascism has now emerged in a context that looked at another way as a decolonizing context, is a post-colonial context, is a a context with an anti-colonial history? That's, I think, the really interesting question. And, And again, the answer, you know, the short answer is decolonization was arrested very early on across South Asia. In Pakistan, in India, in Bangladesh, it, in a sense, was hamstrung from the start and never really unfolded. The project of redistribution, the project of uh, emancipation, the, the project of radical equality, none of these things really took place. What did take place is exactly what Dr. Ambedkar, you know, in a sense, raises the alarm around in India is the transfer of power. And with India and Pakistan, it's a fairly straightforward transfer of power to elites, who in neither case really dismantle the colonial state or fail to dismantle certainly the most repressive, centralized authoritarian aspects of the colonial state, which is why, of course, as, as Jan Prakash has argued, the emergency really has to be seen as the something that was already there uh, in in the state that had not broken uh, from the colonial dispensation. So what we diagnose as as a kind of uh, fascism or proto-fascism in in India today is tied up to that failure, that original failure to break from colonialism's imbrication in racial ideologies and racial capitalism. a powerful, centralized, authoritarian state. So we are we are legatees of colonialism. We, as South Asians, never really broke from the colonial dispensation. So we are now legatees of exactly that dispensation in the first half of the 20th century, where colonialism and fascism were friends before they were enemies. And, and here we are again, not having broken from the colonial dispensation. I think what is very useful to me in thinking about this recently has been Dr. Ambedkar's work because you can see how attuned he was to this reality even in you know 1942, just before the Quit India movement. Um, he's raising the alarm saying, you know, Muslim League, Congress, elites negotiating a transfer of power. This is not, decolonization, this is not the end of oppression. Um, And I'm very struck by how uh, prescient he was and and how really much of what he foretold uh, has come to pass.
1: Can you expand a bit on how this colonial legacy has led to majoritarian nationalism in South Asia?
2: The Bandung moment, which stressed sovereignty and which stressed the centrality of the nation state. That was a bit of a double-edged sword, okay, because on the one hand, we know that even today it is quite important for oppressed, colonized peoples to invoke the nation state as a category of emancipation. So we can't dispense with the nation state. But what we can do is recognize that the post war nation state, even when it sought to be plural and equal, ended up privileging certain kinds of majorities, right? Whether those were linguistic majorities or religious majorities or racial majorities, ethnic majorities. And That majoritarianism, which was embedded into India, into Pakistan, into several other post-colonial nation states, has fed over the years into what we are seeing now, certainly in India, that this is, even if you don't want to call it fascism, which many scholars still hesitate to do, you can see that it is violent authoritarian majoritarianism. Perhaps we can agree that that is, you know, self-evident, and that what we have is Hindu majoritarianism. Majoritarianism is a slightly problematic term in that this is also a very upper caste Brahminical Hinduism, and therefore not, in theory, a numerical majority. But it is, it is the kind of regnant formation, and so we can call it majoritarianism. India certainly came into being with many unresolved questions. Um, and majoritarianism made itself felt from the outset. And so we have, for instance, the unresolved situation of Kashmir. And we have a situation where not just recently, not just Hindutva, but from the outset, the Indian state did not address this question, chose, in a sense, to um, remain in a happy stasis and to, in a sense, follow the logic of annexation. And that's what we saw coming to culmination two, three years ago with the removal of Article 370, and basically, you know, a declaration that Kashmir was not going to be any kind of issue at all. It it would simply be subsumed into the majoritarian nation state. So what we see happening there is on the one hand, the logic of majoritarianism, um, because we still have lip service to democracy, pluralism, equality, all of those things unimpeded by the fact of majoritarianism. And we also have, and Kashmir, it's very, very clear, the, every single weapon of the British colonial state handed over to Indian elites is in play. And I, I mean, the, you know, there isn't even much of an attempt to, to hide this. The state is doing what the state thinks it is entitled to do. Um and in the long run, this is going to be even more of a flashpoint than it has been. And I think I think there is a great deal of um trouble and sorrow and violence being stored up. Um and that is, in a sense, absolutely the consequence of the majoritarian logic of the post colonial nation state.
0: So, do you think um, just to follow up, you trace it back to the logic of the colonial state? That means implied in that is that Congress is also has a part to play in what's happening in India now. The Congress also was to some, because in some liberal circles, I think the BJP and Hindutva gets criticized as authoritarian, but you know Congress is, and it's is juxtaposed to the Congress, which is seen as liberal, democratic, and celebrated. When in fact, you know, Congress from Indira you know, Gandhi onwards, they you know, exercise their own forms of authoritarianism, whether it's the Punjabis, um, the Sikhs in Punjab or in Jharkhand, and the indigenous people and the Maoist struggle that happened there. So would you also kind of, yeah, trace Well, that? I mean,
2: I, I think what I'm saying is that we have a situation where the state was never decolonized. The apparatus of the state, and of course, and that was handed over in the first instance to the Congress and the BJP in a sense arose out of a breakaway section of the Congress. So these are all initially part of the same formation. They were just different, different pressure groups within the same formation. Again, Dr. Ambedkar, writing in the 1940s, you know, pushing against uh, the, what he calls a simple transfer of power, um, is attuned to the fact that the Congress is run by the Indian elites. Um, and the Congress is actually put Particularly authoritarian around the caste question, particularly authoritarian in refusing, and Gandhi was, I think, utterly complicit in this refusing self representation and self emancipation uh, by the oppressed castes, by the most oppressed castes. And you can see a a kind of if you can call it authoritarian inclusivity emerge as the Indian nation state emerges and calls itself plural inclusive. It's, it is the inclusivity and the pluralism of the majority. The majority agrees to be plural, to be inclusive. I want to say that in the context of the horrors of today, you know, that looks utopian, you know that, that part of me saying okay okay let's let's just bring back you know majority niceness because what we're dealing with is is so horrific and so annihilating but it would be dishonest not to see the links between that kind of plural majoritarianism and the horrors of hindutva today uh, i don't want to con- i'm not conflating them but i am saying that there are kinship relations, and those kinship relations should at the very least uh, be acknowledged.
0: Yeah, that's a good kind of segue into our next question, which is on, you know, decolonization. Yeah, you said right now that decolonization remains kind of incomplete in the global south and even in the global north in different ways. And yeah, in (laughs) the west and in the global north in particular, there's been a resurgent interest in the question of decolonization especially after a series of events, you know, the toppling of, um, you know, Edward Colston's statue in Bristol. In Canada, just last year, there was the discovery of uh, mass graves of uh, indigenous children. And so there's this talk again of decolonization. But there is this contestation, at least in the West, happening over what it means to decolonize exactly. So on the one hand, you have folks like, you know, Walter Mignolo, Arturo Escobar, coming from the Latin American perspective, and saying that decolonization in the twentieth century sense was so folk. It was a state-centric process focused on uh, Western epistemology and bound to fail. And that what we need instead of decolonization is decoloniality, which which means rejecting the state form but also rejecting Western epistemology, basically. And they center they center the rejection of Western epistemology as key any decolonial, anti-colonial practice, right? And on the other hand, you have people like, you know, Eve Tuck and Wang, decolonization is not a metaphor, arguing that, you know, yeah, sure, epistemology is important, but ultimately decolonization is, um, and they hold on to the term decolonization, it's a material process, centered especially on the, you know, reclamation of, of land. So the question I want to ask is, how do you position yourself in these debates? And specifically, how do you see the relationship between epistemological and material decolonization? given that your book deals with these two aspects?
2: Right. I mean, that's a huge question and, <laughs> and a, a lot of time on it. And, and you know what? Do, do come back to me if I forget to answer um, aspects of the kind of very rich questions you're posing. So I am, I think, no, it's, and it's not a secret, um, quite skeptical of Mignolo et al., I think they have much to offer in terms of a critique of the violence of modernity. I think that the Latin American tradition in general has a great deal to offer in terms of a kind of primary critique of of colonialism. I mean, this is the, the kind of first major site. Of colonialism in the Americas. Um, And so what comes out of Latin America, including what comes uh, from uh, Mignolo um, et al. is valuable. I should, however, you know, point out that the tradition, the kind of the decolonial tradition, has also been challenged within Latin America. I think most notably by the anthropologist uh, Sylvia Rivera you know, who has a kind of indigenous challenge for, for some of the claims made by uh, Mignolo et al. But without going into that, I think I have a skepticism on two grounds. I think it's right to say that the state and the nation state in particular has been far too central in our engagement with decolonization. And we need to think about what that has meant. Um, And I think I was suggesting that when I was talking about the wholesale use of the colonial state in South Asia. I am skeptical, however, of theories that call for, to use Mignolo's term, delinking from epistemology or delinking from modernity. And that is because I don't see modernity as simply oppression or simply colonialism. Modernity emerges absolutely out of the colonial project and colonialism uh, uh, is needed in order to produce what we call modernity in a material um, and uh, discursive sense. But modernity also ends up becoming a very messy, contradictory formation in which I don't think that the colonized and the enslaved are simply victims. They're also agents of producing modernity, and, and their are challenges in particular. This is something that I think I tried to draw on, uh, draw out in Insurgent Empire, building, for instance, on Susan Buck Morris's work, that what we see as Western epistemology or what we deem to be Western modernity is actually quite reliant in itself on the challenges and the contributions made by the enslaved and the colonized. So I think there is something questionable about handing over epistemology and modernity to the West. In a weird way, there are those in liberal and uh, right-wing formations in the West who are very happy to say, yeah, we we did modernity. produced epistemology, you know, we are the people who, you know, thought about radical equality or, or, or emancipation or whatever. And that is simply not true. And this, again, was what I was, along with others, trying to pull, pull out in Insurgent Empire is that the resistance of the enslaved and the colonized is quite central to the emergence of ideas of freedom, the emergence of ideas of equality, so why should we hand over these ideas to the West? Uh, it just it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, I don't think I am with Mignolo et al. When they hand emancipation as an idea to the West, per se, I, I think we do. Yes, I think we need to make a distinction between kind of paternalist emancipation and, and liberation. These don't belong to the West. So I think that I am not sure... Delinking makes a great deal of sense. I think what we need to be doing, in a sense, is a kind of relinking and making visible the contributions of the global South, uh, of the colonized, of the formerly colonized and enslaved to the West. And, of course, Haiti is very central in this configuration. So, no, not delinking. And the other thing to say is that, you know, when you talk about Western epistemology, I mean, what do we mean? You know, the West is a pretty messy formation in itself. And there are kind of fairly profound differences between, say, Nietzsche and Marx. Or between, uh, you know, Freud and and Jung. I'm just kind of throwing out kind of random examples. Uh, You you have, uh, you know, Spinoza and you have, I guess, Fukuyama. This is a big epistemological tradition with, like any other epistemological tradition, with its fights, its uh, camps, its disagreements, its contradictions. So I'm not even sure that I'm very much on board with an idea called Western epistemology. I, I think that seems a a little bit tendentious to me. But more than that, let us say there is something called Western epistemology. Let's not be too disingenuous. Where does it draw on? And is there a clear boundary to be made between the West and ideas coming from North Africa or Turkey or the Arab world? As a literary scholar, I know that Medieval uh, literature, the novel, etc., cetera, are clearly not separable as purely Western. Yes, there is an English novel. Yes, there is a European Bildungsroman, but there are these roots that kind of stretch across the boundaries of that which is deemed Europe and pull on and draw on other literary cultural traditions. So it, it seems to me it becomes a less easy task when you start to say, well, what is this category called the West, and does it not itself emerge out of the imperial encounter, and what precedes the West? What are its, what is, what is it drawing on to constitute itself? And you think of someone like Aimé Césaire saying, you know, the West likes to think of itself as doing reason and science as if other formations did not do science, as if the, you know, and I think he talks about Assyrian astronomy and Egyptian chemistry, and, you know, this idea that you can somehow suture things into Western modernity and Western epistemology, that strikes me as um, both intellectually not defensible, and also, I think, self-defeating. This is not to say that there aren't other traditions and, and epistemologies and bodies of knowledge that have not been marginalized and wounded and suppressed. Indeed, they have. And that is part of the work that we have to do in thinking about decolonization. I'm sorry I've gone on at such length, but I do want to say one other thing since you asked me about the decolonial um, and Walter Mignolo in particular. Some months ago, we had a book emerging from the belly of the Hindu right wing, which has embraced not decolonization, but has embraced the idea of the decolonial and has been insisting for some time now that what India needs is a return to Hindu epistemology, to Hindu knowledge, which of course is quite specifically Brahmin uh, epistemology and Brahmin knowledge. And we had. Professor Mignolo endorse a book that came written by a very hardcore activist of the Hindu right, who was on the face of it saying, Yeah, you know, the West has been damaging, the West is the oppressor, we need to return to Indian sources. And to me, although Professor Mignolo did withdraw after an outcry, he withdrew his endorsement, to me. The question is, why did you endorse this in the first place? And that isn't just because of a lack of knowledge of where this author was coming from. But really, isn't there something in the decolonial, the idea of, you know, just you pull out another body of knowledge, you turn to the pre-colonial, you pull out something that is not Western and replace the Western by it. That, to me, is a ready-made recipe for exactly what happened. Uh, which is the failure to question what these so-called non-Western epistemologies are, what their content is. And again, these are very mixed traditions. They have emancipatory, liberatory dimensions, and they have deeply reactionary, you know, un- very undesirable and deeply oppressive dimensions. So I don't think we can recuperate something called the decolonial uh, without, again, engaging with difficulty. And it's not a simple matter of one epistemological tradition against another, and I don't think it can be.
0: That was a book by J.S. Deepakar, right? India yeah. That yeah. Word? Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: We're seeing a similar kind of dynamic happen in Pakistan where some right-wing kind of Islamist parties are also using the concept, not of decoloniality, but decolonization. So recently, just like in March this year, there was... There's an Institute of Policy Studies, which is a think tank, sponsored, funded, led by the Jamaat-e-Islami party, Um, and they held a conference called Decolonizing Islamic Studies, and essentially that it's basically they're trying to you know protect and elevate a certain patriarchal iteration, oppressive iteration of Islam through the language of decolonizing, you know, and decolonizing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to say there is, of course, there is decolonization to be done, and of course, the West has produced non-Western traditions and degraded them and 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 so on. But the, the work of decolonization is not a matter of simple replacement. The work of decolonization, and this is something I think I, I say to my own undergraduates, it's a two-way lens that the criticism and introspection that you demand of the West has to be turned on yourself and your own traditions as well. It, it's, not a, it's not a one-way street.
0: So we've talked about the epistemology of, of decolonization, Another question I had was about the materiality of decolonization. Yes. And, you know, yeah, Magnolo kind of ignores that a bit. And then there are people who do engage with that materiality, you know, Buck um, yeah. and Wang. Yes. But it seems to me like that engagement is excludes Marxism, which is very different from the type of way in which decolonization was imagined in the 20th century, right? Which was really engaged with Marxism. Right now in the West, amongst our students, even scholars who are invoking decolonization in a complicated way, talking about epistemology and materiality are still excluding Marxism and saying that Marxism is part of a Western project and should be confronted in any anti-colonial project. So the question I wanted to ask was, what is kind of lost when we don't, when we remove Marxism from mm-hmm. the from an anti-colonial or decolonial practice today? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, it, it occurs to me when you said that, and I forgot to answer your question around Tuck and Yang and, and material decolonization and their and they're holding on to the idea. I'm very sympathetic to a lot of what Tuck and Yang say, which is that, you know, it's very easy for you guys to just fiddle with a curriculum and say, oh God, yeah, now we've decolonized. What about the fact that your university is sitting on land that is literally stolen? I think that that is very salutary. Uh, particularly in the kind of white settler colonies, uh, to say, hello, this isn't just a matter of epistemologies. Uh, This is a matter of some fairly straightforward dispossession that requires restitution. And and in a different way, the Caribbean uh, colonies are raising questions of reparations and saying, you know, here's the bill for, for, for the damage. Um, I am very sympathetic to that. I think where I pull away from Tuck and Yang, and where I think they are actually curiously on the same page as uh, theorists of decoloniality, is in the notion that there are di- that different engagements with decolonization are incommensurable. So, you know, they spend quite a lot of time critiquing. I would say, you know, post-colonial Asian migrants, for instance, critiquing the South Asian or the African engagement with decolonization, because that is not about land. Uh, It is actually about land in some places, but, but let's set that aside for now, that, you know, this is about what they call following the trail of stolen resources, now i agree that migrants need to be attuned to where they are going to and what you know what structures they are participating in but colonialism didn't only take one form you know it was land dispossession in in some places in other places it was a different kind of decimation it was enslavement it was indenture it was the wholesale removal of resources it was the wholesale destruction of economies and i think our engagement with decolonization has to take this range and multiple manifestations of the history of colonialism into account. And I don't think, for instance, that we can say the project of reclaiming land is incompatible or incommensurable with other kinds of decolonization. I think also um, in terms of, you know, Tuck and Yang's engagement with decolonization, it is important that they put forward the question of how difficult this is. What do you do if you are migrant or the descendants of the enslaved living on land stolen from First Nations? It's not a, there's no simple resolution. And just giving back the land will not resolve other complicated things that arise for, from people who, for instance, didn't arrive in the Americas voluntarily um, and, and you know, have been here for uh, hundreds of years. So, again, I think we're back to the question of dealing with difficulty, that there are no simple binaries which will help. On the question of Marxism, Marxism is pretty central, as you just pointed out, to many anti-colonial traditions. And it is very difficult to think of serious engagements with anti-colonialism that did not, at some level, draw on Marxism. But I think here we also need to remember that people who engaged with Marxism, I'm thinking of people like CLR James, George Patmore, who I um, write about, but I'm also thinking uh, of people who come later, have they've also kind of had a critical engagement with Marxism and have challenged its blindnesses, um, its tendency, to think in racialized terms. So I would say that, yes, I don't think any engagement with decolonization can set aside Marxism, but that that engagement has long been a critical engagement, and that critical engagement must continue. Um, And there have been within the Marxist tradition, within the broader left tradition, mistakes and you know repetitions of exclusion whether those are on racial lines or gender lines or you know around questions of sexuality religion um and so i think decolonization also is about keeping the marxist tradition critical and vibrant and not again devolving as i fear it sometimes does into campism into kind of party line taking into a kind of uh, you know, One of the s- things about some forms of Marxism today that, that kind of bothers me is how nation statist it is and how it has kind of failed to be internationalist. There are situations that require internationalism. And instead of building what we might call a global South internationalism, which the world really needs today, we have fallen into rightly criticizing NATO or the West for its tendentious invocation of the international community, so-called, but we haven't You know, countered that with a meaningful internationalism that would, for instance, have something to say and do around despots and despotism and authoritarianism and religious violence in our countries. Um, And I think, in a way, that has been one of the, the bad legacies of Bandung. Bandung in 1955, where, you know, something like the Global South tries to emerge, was very focused on national sovereignty and non-interference. But what about situations that do require something like a truly international community, a real internationalism? And yeah, I'll say it, a real intervention when entire peoples are at the heel of a violent state. Or violent state actors, what do we do? Do we just say, "Well, sorry, non-interference—that's the end of the story," um, or do we try and come up with something that is, again, embracing difficulty and and is imaginative in terms of what we might do?
1: Um, I want to go back to um, when you were talking about, you know, the difficulties. Of forging solidarities, you know, between indigenous say First Nations peoples in North America and the, the black and brown, like descendants of slaves and then brown immigrants. And so in your book, you show that these like white, black, brown solidarities were not just being forged because black and brown people were just merely adopting these like Western ideals and of universalism and freedom uh, to articulate the anti-colonialism, but you show that. The very universalist underpinnings of anti colonial politics were themselves dialogically constructed in these interactions between white dissidents and black and brown anti colonial activists. And so, you know, reading that history in the context of today, where identity politics is predominant within left and liberal spaces, you know, whether it's university campuses or, you know, the mainstreaming of woke culture. Uh, of woke politics, there's a sense that, you know, these past efforts to unite across identities or like across these identities of race, gender, sexuality, failed because the particularities were being subsumed subsumed by these broader uh, categories like class, right? Um, So that means that we should reject this old kind of politics, which didn't take these particularities into account. What do you make of that? Like, what do you what do you make of this this rejection of universalism uh, because of its association with you know leftist um, sort of uh, subsumption of particularities?
2: Well, again, I'm going to I think retreat into the way I began, which is to say, uh, in a sense, both are right and both are wrong. Um, I do not see a binary between the particular and the universal as necessary. Um, again, I think I think alongside Aimé Césaire, who is also thinking alongside Hegel, when he says, you know, I want a universal that is rich with all that is particular. Um, I don't think we can do away with particularities. Uh, you know, human beings are products of specific circumstances, cultures, moments, families, whatever. And we are very wedded to our senses of our particular selves and societies. And that doesn't have to be static, but but there is something about, you know, human life that I think takes joy in the particular. And there are differences. There are differences which we know about, you know, in racially, ethnically, religiously, sexually, whatever. So we have to, that, that, that can't be dispensed with in favor of a universal. But I'm also skeptical of something called radical alterity, you know, which says that actually, you know, human beings are completely different. Um, and there is no point really in trying to uh, find commonalities. But, you know, you just accept that the other is the other and you be nice. Uh, that again seems to me to be a kind of a dead end because human beings have much that is particular. Human beings have much that is in common, and we have to weave these two realities together. I feel a little bit depressed um, when I see these oppositions on the one hand between people embracing radical alterity, refusing the possibility of you know shared ideas, universal. Um, I suppose universal goods and universal rights uh, on the one hand. But I also feel depressed when I see repeat polemics on the left against wokeism, whatever that might mean, repeat polemics against identity politics, as if we didn't all have an identity politics, right? I mean, I think the main difference is do you accept you have an identity politics or do you deny it? A- and I find these kind of quite tired attacks. On identity politics, so-called, on the left. First of all, I think this is happening very late in the day. It is not stopping. It is as though lessons have not been learned. Um, and I find equally the the other side, which retreats into radical alterity and refuses all uh, uh, kind of universal engagement, uh, problematic. And I, and I suppose my perhaps this is a kind of a weaselly answer, but my in my enjoining here is to be dialectical. What is the dialectic of the universal and the particular and what, what comes out of being both dialectical and in a Bachtinian sense dialogical? Right? That we change, we become new people, to, to use Fanon's, to use a variation of Fanon's term, by engagement with each other. Um, But that does not come by saying, oh, here is a, you know, here is a Marxist idea, everybody come on board. Otherwise, you're just, you know, uh, woke losers. The, The universal has to be forged. And it has to be forged through dialogue. And it has to be forged through engagement. And, and I don't think, again, there is an easy way. Everything in front of us requires grappling with something that is demanding.
0: So, yeah, keeping on this theme of um, kind of solidarity, and I want to ask you a question about material basis for solidarity. I sound like an orthodox Marxist <laughs> asking questions about materiality. But so in your book, you know, your Insurgent Emp- um, Empire, a great book, I really, you know, we read it for preparation for this interview, and it was really, really, a really important intervention. Um, you know, you mentioned the figures like Sh- uh, Shapurji Sakatwala, you know, the British... Indian Communist Party member who was... And he was amongst a series of folks who were trying to argue that decolonization of India would benefit British white working class people as well. Um, so there was material gains to be had for both uh, subalterns in, the, in India and subaltern folks in, in Britain. Um, and then... But then, like, there's, you know, scholars, Indian scholars, people like, you know, Aditya Murkarji in India... Argue that you know colonialism, British colonialism was a supra-class project, that it unevenly but benefited both the bourgeoisie and the proletariat in England, unevenly but benefited both. And that kind of fact meant that it undermined the prospects of solidarity between working classes in Britain and working classes and subalterns in India. That there was a material basis that prevented. Some of the ideas that um, Shapurji was trying to promote, there was a material basis that prevented that from becoming popular in British society. There was material advantages for the proletariat for colonization. So my question is, A, kind of what do you make of that argument Mm -hmm. by Mukherjee? And B, do you think today the current kind of, there is a more, the kind of arguments that, um, you know, it's was making back in the day now have more currency, in British society, perhaps, and there's more kind of criticism of the colonial project. And is that to do maybe with the material basis, with austerity, all of that, the material basis of imperialism collapsing, But there's more kind of, now people feel more in solidarity with global South actors in a context of austerity and so forth?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, on Mukherjee's point, I think there is something to be said for that point, which is, yes, that, that one of, and this is why racializing capitalism becomes quite important, because what do you do? You, you create a racial hierarchy of the working class and you do create people who in some sense uh, are in a very minimal way benefiting from the fact that the country is now rich. Okay, so we do know that the British welfare state was made possible by colonialism, and it's a, it's and this is why, in one sense, we do not have a very sharp labor or trade union tradition of criticizing imperialism, because that recognition is you know in a sense built in. Empire enriches a few, but it's it's the crumbs are available to many. Okay, and. And that still continues to be the case in in many ways. That uh, the Western, broadly speaking, the U- European American masses are kept happy with cheap products made in the sweatshops uh, of the global South. That's as you say. That is changing. I think that in talking about Saklatvala and solidarity and others, I think there was. You know, probably an element in his thinking and in my thinking about him of hope, which is to say, can we get people despite their differential uh, economic and differential racialized positions to think about who the you know shared oppressor is? And it's not easy and it's particularly not easy because and this is something I think we can see now more clearly than ever that the media is owned by billionaires and the media disseminates the stories that the working classes buy. And that makes solidarity next to impossible to disseminate as a popular idea because the ongoing uh, billionaire press intervention is around race to say, you know, and this is where David Rüdiger's work is very important, that is to say that whiteness becomes a means, really, uh, becomes a wage in its own right. And it it, it kind of obscures the economic exploitation. And you've seen the return in, in recent years of the white working class as a political category. And it's been very depressing to witness it. And it's been very depressing to witness people on the left use the category as though it wasn't a construct, as though it wasn't a very deliberate racialized construct, as though there was some self-evident oppression of white working classes as white working classes that we should be paying attention to. So solidarity is not easy. um, And I would not wish to suggest for one moment that it's a simple matter of getting people to recognize a common oppressor. There's a lot that comes in the way, and a lot that's very material that comes in the way, and, and that includes um, the media and it includes differential access uh, to resources. But the, sorry, what was the second point of your uh, second part of the question?
0: Is there, I mean, you're right, there's uh, in some ways in the West we're seeing less solidarity. Yeah. We'll talk of the working class, white working class, and you know brexit but on the other hand there is some pe- there is kind of um, you know saklavalas was very marginal a very marginal actor but yeah. now some of saklavatas ideas there's a little more a bit more currency yes. you know and how do you explain that shift is there is that shift despite all the brexit and all that disconnection is that connection that's happening is that to do also in a context where the material basis Material benefits it's, that people yeah. have. The welfare state is gone, is crumbling. All of the, you know with austerity and so forth. And so there's more material based reasons for solidarity to be created.
2: I think there is material. There is more commonality emerging, um, and I think more and more people are realizing that they are being shafted by capitalism, by international capitalism, are being shafted. Uh, you know, by by the wealthy. I'm not. Entirely sure, I agree with you that solidarity is increasing. I can, I, I agree with you that there ought to be increasing solidarity because austerity is actually a form of colonial impoverishment. It is actually a form of treating the poor as disposable um, and as uh, uh, you know, essentially. Uh, racializing them as unworthy of of living that you would think it would generate commonality. What we have not reckoned with, and and this is where I think uh, the, the left does need to broadly get its act together. We have not reckoned with how powerful race is as a construct and how in the face of great impoverishment, People will still turn on migrants. So when Brexit was happening, people were being interviewed. People were being interviewed by the press, working class people, and being told, by the way, Brexit will mean you might earn less um, or it might mean your savings will, be, uh, will go down in value. And people were saying, well, actually, if it means that we don't get, you know, if we, if we don't get more migrants, that's fine. We'll take it. We'll, you know, we'll take it on the chin. I'm not saying that is the only thing that is happening, but it is a, it is a serious formation. Um, you know, Othering, racial othering, cultural othering, religious othering has a tenacity and power that the billionaire press is able to deploy every single day. And I think that unless we take it seriously um, and, and try to think about ways to find solidarity through that juggernaut, despite that juggernaut, um, we're in trouble. I, I completely agree that, that every single day, capitalism's kind of rapacity is becoming clearer and clearer to, to ordinary people in the West, but their attention is being demanded by other kind of stories and controversies uh, that should worry us.
1: Thank you so much, Priya, for being on Jumho Radio. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Uh, Thanks to our audience for tuning in to this podcast, and do make sure to check out the rest of the articles in our issue on imperialism.
0: And we would also like to thank our patrons for supporting Jamur and making this special issue possible. If you like our content, and we hope you do, consider becoming a patron. You can do so by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Jamur.